you know, the, the interesting thing about this book is you started it thinking one thing and you ended it thinking another, which on a meta level is you changed your mind about how minds change. And why don't you just tell that to the reader? Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. You and I might not have ever met. Nevertheless, I feel confident in telling you that you are unaware of how unaware you are. Part of the reason that I can say that is because I have learned a lot from the guest I interviewed today, Mr. David McGranny. He's the author of a book called You Are Not So Smart, which is also the name of a blog that he started years ago and a podcast that he still runs today, all about self-delusion, all about our perceptual filters, our cognitive biases, and all the ways that we delude and deceive ourselves. His latest book that's coming out in 2021 or early in 2022 is called How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion. His writing has been featured in The Atlantic, The New York Post, Salon, Brain Pickings, Lifehacker, Gawker, Boing Boing, The Huffington Post, Big Think, and many other places. I think he's a fascinating and deeply intelligent, thoughtful human being. David has worked as an editor, a photographer, a voiceover artist, a television host, a public speaker, a TV producer, and he's done a lot of interesting jobs, incredible life experience, written extensively. He's been a journalist. His perspectives and his insights are truly fascinating. The kinds of things that can help you not only understand yourself better, but other people. And I think to live with more humility, more compassion, more empathy, and ultimately more fun. You can learn more about David's work at youarenotsosmart.com. You can also find him online at davidmcraney.com. With that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, David McGraney. David, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here. Will you tell me, please, what is life about? I would never endeavor to uh, assume that my uh, extraction of value from the sea of chaos is the only value that could ever be extracted from it. Nor would I assume that my personal arc is complete. Therefore, anything I may have find insightful, uh, I'm sure there'll be something further along down the way that's going to bust up some of my assumptions. But currently, I feel like the point of life is to uh, articulate the ineffable in every, whatever way that is that you personally are capable of doing with your talents and experiences. Uh, so much of human existence is ineffable to get across from one brain to the other or to make sense to yourself. And you will have talents that you will either be born with, nature and nurture will give you some things and experiences will give you others. And you will find a place in your life where you can extract value from the chaos and you will be able to articulate the ineffable in a way that creates a little brick that other people can use to build other more complex articulations and abstractions. And then layer upon layer upon layer, uh, we keep doing that. And what it used to be ineffable in one generation will not be so in the next. And all of a sudden uh, we're building spaceships and we're going to you know the moons of Jupiter. So I feel like that's the point of life. And in so doing, it has to be done in a compassionate, empathetic way that you know values other human beings and their uniqueness and agency and all the rest. 
So I feel that's it. And I think the more I get into, even though I come from a very evidence-based science journalism background, I find that across domains, there are people who are articulating the ineffable in all sorts of interesting ways. You might be an artist, you might be a dancer, you might be a physicist, you might be uh, a psychologist who I spend most of my time with. But whatever that person does is can be laterally uh, borrowed from somebody in another silo. And I find that you know a great work of art can cause someone to feel like, oh, I'd never, I didn't know that could even be expressed. And then they can then churn it into their silo and express something new from it. So that's currently what I'm jamming out on is this idea of articulating the ineffable. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. You know, as I read your, a little bit about your background, uh, your bio, it seems to me there's almost nothing you haven't done <laughs> at one point or another. Um, this, the one I want to ask you about, right? Because there's waiting tables, working construction, selling leather coats, building and installing electrical control panels, even owning pet stores. But one that I thought, man, there's probably at least one amazing story there is Tornado Survivor. This is true. Oh, I was actually only a few feet away from where I'm at right now when that happened. I used to be uh, a journalist for uh, a television station. I ran their web department, <clears throat> had this ridiculous title, which was like director of new media, right? That was when there was such a thing as new media. And the my job was I had come from print journalism, went into uh, TV journalism, and I was sort of onboarding people onto how do you write for uh, the for the web? How do you how do you turn um, journalism that's for the camera into something that should be read at lunch or whatever. <clears throat> so a lot of the things I'd learned in journalism school, a lot of things I'd learned as a print journalist that was trans, I was basically just retraining, reteaching people the things that I'd learned. And, but I had this other part of my job, which was since I was the person that knew how to did the back end of the website, um, whenever bad weather would come through, I would sort of be on call and I would work with the weather department and we would give updates, constant updates across all sorts of platforms. Um, so I just happened to be home and I was also just happened to be, um, finishing the edits on my second book, uh, uh, you are now less dumb. And I was at the point where it was time to turn it in almost like a week away. Um, when some really terrible weather came through and all of a sudden I'm giving updates. Here's where this is, here's where this is, here's where this is. And I'm tracking everything on my computer. I, my office used to be in, a, in another room and, um, <clears throat> I was, I saw a tornado track and I was like, this tornado is headed straight for me. And, uh, I, uh, got, I, I, I <clears throat> my wife and I, we got in the hallway. I, we put blankets over us and a mattress and, uh, I heard the tornado coming and it sounded like a giant, uh, smashing its way through the neighborhood. I know people say it sounds like a freight train, but it sounded more like a, a an angry Titan. And, uh, you could hear the power, uh, lines. Uh, breaking and making the zipping lightsaber sounds <laughs> as it's approaching and it's just churning up the world uh and i remember looking at her eyes and i said you know this is it i love you and we uh i covered myself up and it, and it went right through the house uh it ripped off the uh roof and the ceiling and uh trees skewered the house and it kept going that way and uh did tons and tons of destruction uh er erased about five houses in this neighborhood and wow. um I stood up, went back into my office and it was just open and water was just pouring in. Uh, so at just a few seconds or a few minutes before that happened, I uh, sent all of my uh, manuscript stuff to Dropbox and it was waiting, right? Wow. Um, and so that was harrowing. And uh, one of my very close friends 
uh, just happened to be in the neighborhood and he showed up before the uh, police and fire department did. And then the police and fire department showed up. And then um, my parents showed up. Our, our cars were also destroyed and the, uh, they picked us up. And then and I went out to Summerall, a very, very small town in South Mississippi uh, where my parents live. And when we got out there, um, I called my agent and said, hey, I'm not going to be able to no, no, take that back. Take that back. I called my publisher. I said, hey, uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to turn this in on time. A tornado just ate my house. <laughs> and uh, my publisher at the time said, well, look, I understand you're under a lot of duress, but you know everything is on schedule. The printers are ready to run. If we don't turn this in, uh, you're going to be pushed forward by a couple of months, and uh, it just won't be good for any of us. And is there any way you can like finish the edits where you're at? Wow. And uh, so I went to Walmart and bought a laptop. I bought a copy of Word. I went back to my parents, installed Word, got the laptop up and going opened up Dropbox, brought down the manuscript and finished it. And so I finished that book while water was just pouring in this house. And I, and I spent about three days on that. And then when I sent it off, I got back over here and got to work and started putting the house back together. And my oh, agent, gosh. my agent, who's been my agent this whole time, she likes to tell that story because she called my publisher and, and lost her mind. Uh, but it's become one of these tales that gets talked about in publishing about how, um, I finished the book well after with a tornado <laughs> after or like in the middle of a tornado, which isn't exactly true, but it, it that's the that's the full story of it. Wow! And I still have P, I still have very strong PTSD from this. Like when bad weather comes through, like I get immediately like <clears throat> oh no, and then um I have a a, a bug out bag in this hall in this closet, which is just for emergent uh natural disasters. So I've like prepped, but it turned it turned me into a soft prepper, which deal helps me deal with the anxiety of terrible uh, weather. Wow. What an amazing story and how fortunate it turned out that you were safe, first of all. No, thank you. <laughs> and your wife. And, and then how incredible that is. I'll, I, I'm going to file that away somewhere, hopefully closer to the top of mind. And just remind <laughs> myself that I have no excuse for not finishing a piece of writing I've committed ever again. That's true. <laughs> for the rest it's of true. My life. Don't, don't think that that made me never be a, uh, it doesn't make writing any easier. It doesn't make procrastination any less, uh, appealing but yes you can you can finish your book even after a tornado has smashed all your work <laughs> wow that is hardcore that is awesome man um okay so let me ask you this because i understand that you have well i want to ask you about your weight loss right oh, cool. because so much of what i think we're all striving for is to become the best version of ourselves and change is hard even when we know a lot of stuff mm. about human behavior or whatever but you have, I think you've lost like 85 pounds. Is that right? I've lost, uh, I just hit 90 a couple of days ago. So yeah. Congratulations. Holy cow. Yeah. So I, how'd you do it? I counted calories. Um, which I know that's very simple, but uh, I, I, what really happened was, uh, and I'm, I'm probably going to make a little, a little Kindle single out of this. Uh, there's a, um, a really great uh, neuroscientist um, uh, who, who does work in this domain in, in like, altering behavior for the sake of uh, smoking cessation or weight loss or all sorts of things. Um, and I've talked to him about like, would it be great to partner up and do like a, um, a, I've thought of the, a, a great title would be the body of an idiot, which would be, which would be in line with my brand. But the, because, you know, all weight loss is just exercise more and eat and eat less. That's, that's, there's no, everyone knows that, but you, if you were to make that into a book, it would just be, you know, one, a bunch of pages for notes. And then one, one page is like, Hey, don't eat so much. 
um, everyone knows it. So the secret to weight loss is actually behavioral. And there, and we are such a complex and nuanced organism that the behavior, the behavioral changes that will work for one person might be very easy in some regards, or very difficult in others, depending on your life and everything that's going on with you. Uh, plus, there's some nuanced differences in in metabolism and digestive systems and all that kind of stuff. But still, calories in, calories out works. So I found the thing that worked for me was uh, first of all, the, what inspired this was uh, I did a live show in New York. And uh, it was very exciting to be, because as a kid, I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. That's what I wanted more than anything. And to get to actually do a live show in New York was the fulfillment of something. And after the live show, I even went down to the uh, Saturday Night Live studios and just walked around in the gift shop. And I felt this just prickly, like I really, something kind of happened that I wanted to happen here. But the some of the feedback for that live show were like, I can't believe this guy's telling us how to uh, think better or whatever. And, and look at him, he's clearly overweight. And I was like, oh, that stings. And, but they were right. And uh, I- So people actually said that, like there was those comments you heard or something sure, you heard somebody say? Comments on the, on the social media, yeah. Ouch. And uh, so I, uh, it really stuck in my craw and it wasn't like one of those things where I was like, uh, how dare you body shame me? I thought, you know, you're right. I do need to lose some weight. So I uh, got an, I, I looked into it. I talked to the, to Judd Brewer about this and, and he agreed that um, there need, you needed to track everything you, you put into your body. Uh, and he said, you probably think you're doing a good job and you're not. So I got, I tried a, double, a couple different apps. I settled on one called lose it, but I don't think it matters which one you use. Um, and I, started to religiously track every, everything I ate and drank. And I found out very quickly uh, some problem areas. One was coffee, like uh, the, the, the amount of creamer and the amount of uh, calories that, was, that I was getting in there. You know, I looked at the, the serving size, it was like 35 calories, but that's for like a teaspoon. So and I was putting like, you know, a cup and, and multiple times a day. And then um, I just started tracking my calories through that and keeping a very tight record of that. I got a smart uh, uh, scale that also, you know, connects to the internet and gives me a running record. And I had a very close friend who was just really ripped. And I was like, how did you do this? And he said, uh, here's how you should lift. And, you know, here's what I think about this thing and this thing and this thing. And with all that advice and then the tracking, I just committed to it. And uh, once you lose 10 or 15 pounds, which you lose really quickly, you're like, wow. And then, and then it gets harder and harder as your body acclimates. But because you're tracking it, you see that like over the course of two weeks, something happened. And then if it gets harder, you see over the course of three weeks, something happened. And you know that it's because you're, you're taking tight control of how many calories you're putting in your body and you get, you're not full. So you, you start uh, adjusting your, you're the kind of food you eat because you're not happy uh, and not satisfied. So you naturally, for me personally, I learned like, well, I should eat more of this. I should eat more of that. And then that is, this is to stay full. And so it just developed my own um, uh, like uh, diet plan over time, but it started out with just hardcore tracking. So, oh. and then I, then I started lifting weights, which, which complicates things because it makes you much very hungry. But uh, those two things combined. Uh, and I started riding a bicycle, lifting weights, but I didn't do that until it was pretty deep in because um, all of the people who had been there before me were like, you know, it's, it's, uh, the exercise part is not going to work until you train yourself to, uh, eat properly. So that was, uh, that's how I did it. It was all, it was all tracking. Wow. That 
you know, there's a part of me that uh, hates to hear that. <laughs> it's like, it's psychedelics, you know, I had just one trip and, or something, but. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, uh, that, that's not outside the realm of, of possibility. I'm not saying, so, you know, add some psilocybin and maybe it will assist, but uh, in the end, you need to be committed to the idea of tracking. I think for me personally, it's not, that's what worked. Yeah, it worked. <clears throat> awesome. Well, one thing I've been fascinated about is I've read some of your work and listened to some of your podcasts is this the organizing principle, what I, what I would call an organizing principle of, of your work, right? This whole thing about that we are unaware of how unaware we are. Yes, very sure. Right. And this exploration of self-delusion, um, so you are not so smart. We've talked about this before. We were recording how devastating it was for someone who's named himself brilliant to learn. You are not so smart. But I love your book. And I love what your work, as I understand it, is, is about. And part of what was so fascinating to me to begin to dig into is that this idea, and you can correct or, or clarify or whatever, that it really, what, what set you on this path was one video, this Darren Brown. Yeah, that's totally true. That's totally true. tell me about that? Um, I, um, so I studied psychology and journalism in uh, university, I'm one of those rare cases that actually is using my two degrees to do the, to do work in those fields. Um, I, uh, but I had, I had become an editor of the school newspaper. I, I, I somewhere along the path of becoming, I wanted to be a, a, a therapist and I was taking all these 400 level classes and there was a, a sign up on campus that said, uh, opinionated, just with a big question mark, come to the uh, school newspaper and see if you would like to write. And I was like, I am opinionated. So I went over to the school newspaper. I was like, how do you do this? They were like, just, you know, here's the email address and here's how many words it needs to be. So I wrote some opinion piece about like uh, the coffee shop being uh, taken over by Starbucks, something, something that a, a college student would write. And uh, it got a lot of feedback, but then I wrote another piece that was about, uh, I was in all these psychology classes and I had recently learned that whenever your, um, whenever your football team loses, your sperm count goes down. And our football team had lost every single game so far that year. And I thought it'd be funny to write a, a tongue-in-cheek uh, op-ed about how low the sperm count would, must be at, at our school, um, uh, given the, the relevant science. And uh, I remember one of my professors just asking the class if they had read it and how funny it was. And he didn't know it was me. And uh, that level of validation, I was like, ooh, I might want to do this. And so... I signed up to be the uh, news editor and then I was the executive editor and that opened a lot of doors to be, to get jobs in journalism. And then Katrina came through hurricane Katrina. And uh, I was hired as a stringer to write for um, a number of different newspapers in the area. And I eventually got hired as at one of them. What's, and, uh, what's this term stringer? Stringer is just someone who, who works for the newspaper, but doesn't uh, employ as a, as a full-time employee there. Uh, uh, so it's just sort of a mercenary, it's a journalistic mercenary. Okay. And um, I, for that, I was going to people's houses and, and, and interviewing them in person. And I was on the, doing this all this on the ground reporting. And I was reading that kind of journalism too. I was reading stuff from, um, from like the electric Kool-Aid acid test and stuff like that, the, that old literary journalism that had fallen out of favor. And I just loved it. I was like, God, journal, literary journalism is, the, is still my favorite thing on earth. Literary journalism is my favorite form of writing. And I, um, I fell into a couple of different people who I found to be incredible writers in that domain. Charlie Ledoff is, uh, is a good example of that. Uh, Matt, uh, 
um, Perry, uh, the, and of course, you know, you fall into like Hunter S. Thompson and stuff like that. But the, but I was just excited by it. And I went out and I did one of the people I interviewed. She had lost, uh, she was 101 years old and she lived in like a, almost a cabin. And because of Hurricane Katrina, I thought it would be interesting to interview her and see, because uh, she had lived through a couple of hurricanes. Um, most notably, she had lived through um, one of the bigger hurricanes that had come through, uh, you know, decades earlier. And uh, I wanted to see her take on it. But I also heard, knew that she, uh, I knew from people in the community that she had not had electricity uh, until relatively recently. She didn't start. She didn't have her home wasn't electrified until the '60s. So. I wanted to see what it felt like for her to lose electricity for two weeks. And so I went to her house and uh, she only wanted to talk about her tomatoes, her, uh, um, her deep freeze. When uh, a hurricane came through in the sixties, they, they came and they got her deep freeze and they put all everybody's deep freezes in a, a big warehouse because everybody subsisted off of that more than they do today. And she just kept waiting for someone to come get it and they never did. And so she lost uh, 68 bags of tomatoes. And so, but, but also we talked about what it was like to experience it. Her, her son, who was in his seventies lived with her still. And he, he, lived, he waited out everything in a, in a root cellar. Uh, and the, the water came up to here when it was in the root cellar. He thought he was gonna drown. And it was a really, really, really powerful um, story that I wanted to, communicate but I also wanted to play with it a little bit and so I made the headline um woman loses 68 bags of tomatoes and so that, that was the headline and so, <laughs> and so I made the entire story this like deep investigative piece about why this woman lost all of her tomatoes and then you learn within it that it's more about the effects of her Katrina. but also what you learn is how times have really changed and uh she would have had running water except they had electrified her uh her well uh sometime in the 60s and if they had done that she could have had running water so that was what the story was really about and um i won a scholarship from that i got a ten thousand dollar scholarship from um one of the big um journalistic this like, isn't scripts it? it was i think it was scripts who ironically is now my handles my advertising on my podcast but they they wow. um i got a ten thousand dollar scholarship and that was it for me i was like this is what i want to do for the rest of my life i want to tell people's stories. I want to bring people from, I want to, I want to bring people in front of people in this way and, and in their humanity, we explore all of our humanity. And um, so that's how this started. But then I ended up working for that TV station. And when I got to that point in my career, I'd, I'd done cops and courts at a, at a newspaper and I covered higher education in a newspaper. When I got to the TV station, I wasn't writing anymore. And I just lost this whole part of myself. And so I started up a blog and I knew that um, I wanted a blog that would be um, about psychology because I had all this psychology stuff. I would like, you know, when I go on long road trips, I would tell people like, actually, you know, this is blah, 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 or I would tell them about confirmation bias or something, or I really enjoyed talking about the introspection illusion. Um, and there's all these studies that show we are unaware of the antecedents to our thoughts, feelings, behaviors, but we have no problem creating a narrative to explain our thoughts, feelings, behaviors. And we live by that narrative, even though it's most likely fictional. And 
there are many, many studies that illustrate this. And no matter what you're doing on a road trip, you can, there's something you can point to and say, there's, this is like that, or this is like that. And sometimes that's taken well, sometimes it's taken as, please, can we just enjoy ourselves? But I thought it would make for a good uh, blog. Um, and, and I never committed to it. Uh, there were a lot of very, at this point in history, it'd be 2007, eight, nine, there were a lot of very narrow slice blogs out there blogs about just one tiny thing. Like somebody is not just into thimbles, they're into thimbles made in the 1860s in uh, Norway. And that's, that's all it's about, Norwegian 1860 thimbles. You know, there's so many narrow slice blogs. And I thought I, would, I wanted to make one, but I didn't know what to name it or how to, how to present it. And I, was, I saw on YouTube, the Darren Brown person swap experiment. And uh, it's really cool. So uh, all this time later, uh, I've, blurred Darren Brown's books and he's blurred my books, which is really nuts to wow. think that it, start, he, it started from obscurity and now like I'm in their world. But um, in this video, he's on, um, he does a thing where he uh, asks people for directions and then somebody comes along and switches places with them and people don't realize that they're talking to somebody who's not Darren Brown anymore. I thought that was impossible. So I went, used my access to the library, uh, the university library and brought up the relevant uh, literature on it and found that Darren Brown, he often uses science advisors, including uh, um, a couple, some people who've been guests on the show. And um, he had uh, based it off of uh, the work of uh, Daniel Simons, and who is who ended up being the first guest on my podcast, who they did the famous invisible gorilla experiment. But before that, they did the, the change blindness. <clears throat> In their actual experiment, they go on a college campus and they have someone ask a stranger for, it's a Confederate with the study, ask for directions somewhere on campus. Where's the dining hall? Where's the library? Something like that. And then as they're talking, someone comes through with a big door, like they're, like they're doing construction. And the person who's on the back end of the door switches places with the person who was asking for directions. So now there's a completely different person asking for directions. And they just measured how often do people notice? And half of the time, 50% of the time, people do not notice. And we know they don't notice because it's not just that they don't react, they follow up and say, hey, by the way, you were just in a study. Did you, did you notice anything strange about what just happened here? And they'd be like, no. So half of the time, people have no, do not notice the person in front of them who they were just talking to, who they were just giving directions to has now been replaced completely by a new individual. And they would alter it. They would change gender. They would change uh, skin tone. They would change height. They would do all sorts of stuff, age, same effect. And this led to, if you ever read the Invisible Gorilla book, uh, they talk a lot about how, you know, only maybe a 20% of, we're only attending to about 20% of what's coming into our senses. And the rest of it, we're just making assumptions based on what's happened before. And I thought, wow, I want to put a lot of that kind of stuff onto one central location so people can understand how unaware of how unaware that we are. The thing that, the meta thing that fascinated me wasn't that people were unaware, it's that you totally believed you were. And we live in this undeserved confidence, this frame that everything is a one-to-one -one representation. We have perfect memory, uh, that we know exactly what happened yesterday. We know everything is going on in front of us. There's this whole feeling of confidence that I wanted to just explode. And uh, John Stewart had been using on um, The Daily Show. Uh, he was like, eh, not so much. It was just a sort of a catchphrase punchline that he would use. And I remember sitting on a, I was smoking a cigarette on a front porch like a, like a good Southern writer. And I thought you were, you were not so smart would be a fun name. And I attribute 85% of that first year to just ha having a name that had not been used yet. And uh, I started a blog and then 
at first it was just tons and tons of content about that kind of stuff, often YouTube videos. And then I got into an argument with some of my friends about uh, Xbox versus PlayStation, uh, the Xbox versus 360 versus the PlayStation 3, which one was better. And we got very angry and almost ruined our friendship over how angry we got. And I thought, why did we get angry over boxes of wires and branding? So I looked at the research into brand loyalty and fanboyism and uh, wrote an article for my blog about it. And it just so happened right about that time, the iPhone prototype was stolen by Gizmodo, a very popular tech blog at the time. And they were looking for, I assume they just had a Google alert or something. And they found my article and they asked if they could reblog it. And I said, sure. And I, that night I went from like 1500 uh, fans or 1500 uh, subscribers to 250,000. And then the next day, a million. So just literally overnight because of that one reblog, I had all these new eyeballs on the blog. So I very quickly wrote three more articles. One was about learned helplessness and uh, a couple other things that I thought would be interesting. Uh, and then those all got tons of shares and I was suddenly like swept up into the virality of this thing. And I started getting phone calls and emails from agents. And, um, one of them was felt like she got it. She had worked on Freakonomics and, um, her name is Erin Malone. She's still my agent. She's like the person, she's the person that changed my life. Uh, she's the person who extended her hand and pulled me up on stage. And um, she's like, let's make a, listen to a book. And so that turned into the, to the book. And now that book is, um, I think it's in 19 languages. It's, it's been number one in Vietnam for, for, for months and months and months because it, ju it just came out in Vietnam. And um, my dad, as a Vietnam vet, he took it to his PTSD, um, um, uh, group therapy meeting, uh, and he took the book with him. And it's just such an existential, uh, you know, conundrum for him to think like, you know, my son's book is number one in Vietnam where I, you know, this is the reason I'm here. It's, it's wild. So it completely changed my life. And when I, they asked me to write a second book and to promote it, I, I started the, the podcast and the podcast was only meant to promote the second book, but then uh, that ended up becoming the centerpiece of my whole like thing. Like I do all sorts of stuff, but the podcast sort of is the, is the, the, the pole around which, you know, everything else is attached. And uh, uh, that's become just, I, I, it's, it's expanded what I want to do. It started out just being the psychology of reasoning and decision-making, but now I feel okay to talk about just about anything. Like we, like I just had Megan Phelps Roper on, on and talking about her experiences with Westboro and it was incredible. Um, and I just went up to NYU and, and uh, got a bunch of experts on QAnon, and that's going to be a follow-up follow episode. So um, I keep that as the centerpiece, and it's just changed my life. So now I got I, it's become my beat, and so I've been doing this beat for 11 years now, and that's um, I'm deeply, deeply, completely obsessed with it. Yeah, it's, which is very <laughs> evident <laughs> for anyone that, that looks, even for a moment, and, and I'm glad you are. How, how do you think your life is different that's actually not the question I want to ask. The question I want to ask is many people write about this now, this kind of thing. I yeah. think mm -hmm. you, you have, this is my view, right? You have a unique voice. Why, what makes your writing and your podcasting and your work? I mean, aside from the fact you're the originator of it, you're the originator of it, but why, why has your work found resonance with so many people and many other people? are probably still toiling in obscurity and always will be, even though they're writing and talking about the same things. Hmm. Um, I mean, 
partially I don't know, but uh, the the parts that I do know, um, for one, like I really am obsessed with this. Like this is, and it gives me incredible joy because my pursuit is a higher order pursuit at, at, at the end of the day. Like I'm really trying to understand my place in this grand drama. Um, and that's always the point of the interview. Like when I'm get a chance to sit in front of a scientist who's devoted their life to a very particular thing in, in the world of psychology, I'm begging them to help me understand myself and my place in all of this. And then by, and then I know I want to make it entertaining for an audience. And so I, I write to that idea. Um, and uh, I want this to be, uh, I feel like I want you to, to join me in playing hooky with the universe for a minute. I want you to join me in, in the absolute absurdity of existence for a minute. And I want you to enjoy to, to, I found value for myself in a unity through humility. And I feel like that's what this whole project is about. It's, it's bringing everybody out. There's just like, um, uh, there's, Andy Warhol, I remember he once, I found this way later in life, but he said that he, he, he didn't have a problem with mass consumer culture because he liked the idea that when he drank a Coke, it was the same Coke that the president drank. <laughs> He's, it made him happy to know that like there was a democratization of in that, in that way. And I find that um, there's nothing I'm talking about that isn't something experienced universally by all human beings. And there's nothing that I'm asking you to try to attempt to overcome or to at least be aware of that is it in the way of us and whatever it is that thing we're trying to become, no matter what it is you're doing, uh, no matter how how minded your goals are, no matter how how absolutely unique to your personal life right now in the moment, that is the thing that is between you and whatever it is you're trying to get out of your existence. Like, I, I feel there's a, a, a incredible unity in this, in the humility of saying, look at us as this uh, dollop of the ocean that got dumped out onto the, the shore and now it's sad <laughs> and and <laughs> and that um i will never uh uh get to what i'm trying to get to and that feels good like i i i i am i ache to 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 get closer and closer to, to understanding how all this fits together and that's uh that's the drive of it and then i also understand that i want I'm very aware of the audience and I want it to be entertaining. I used to challenge myself by saying like, how long can I make a blog post that people will read all the way to the end? And I would use metrics to see how far they would go. And um, because I come out of literary journalism, that all applies over into the, to what I'm doing here. I want you to enjoy the writing. I want you to enjoy the storytelling of it. I want you to be compelled by that. And um, so those two drives are always happening. Those are the two pistons of the back end. Like I literally am aching to understand this stuff. And on the other side, I really want the audience to have a awe experience from listening to it with a playfulness and the jokiness and everything else. And, and I commit all the way to all of those, of those things. And I think that anyone can do that and your unique voice will come through. I was very worried. My editor gave me a really good note uh, years and years ago. I had not done any research to see what other books were on the shelves about the stuff. And then I was really blown away to find that a few years earlier, somebody had written how we know what isn't so, which is so close to you are not so smart. And I told my editor, I was like, if I had found that book, I would not have written you are not so smart. I would have been like, oh, somebody already did this. Mm -hmm. And um, my editor at the time said, do you know how many books are written about the civil war every year? Like, like more than a hundred. 
uh, and they just keep baking them. Like it, it's not, it's like, you think we're done talking about it, right? Um, he, said, he, he said, you know, you, nobody's buying the book because of the topic necessarily. They're buying it because it's your way of expressing. It's your way of looking at it. It's your perspective. It's your unique take. It's your unique voice. And uh, if you remember that, you can apply that to whatever it is you're, you're doing. Uh, and that got me out of that frame because I had gotten to a point where I was really worried that it, I was just on a bandwagon. And um, there, my editor at the time said, there's no such thing. So that, that helped a whole lot too. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. What did you find was the answer to that question, right? Of how long a reader will remain engaged? Because I mean, some of these, like in the, whatever, Esquire, or The Atlantic, not Esquire, uh, Harper's, I mean, that's like 5,000, 7,500 words. I think people read all of those, but what did you find? I have found that for a, for a blog post that doesn't have, it only has one thing to say, 5,000 words about about as much as you can commit because the reader knows that about 5,000 words. Okay. I get it. So you yeah. need to have multiple, um, signposts. If you have three or more things that you're trying to say, you can extend it out to 12,000 words. Um, I usually do 12,000 words as a chapter is my limit. I keep, I keep a limit. If it hits 12,000, that's too much. I feel like the cognitive load of a chapter at once it passes 12,000, you feel like, um, it feels like the chapter should be over by now. It's sort of the natural cognitive load. Like of a movie is about two hours, two and a half hours. There's a, just a point. I feel like those things find their level. Like, I don't think, I think movies are two hours long because that's how long you can, you can, you can sit and enjoy a, a work in that context. I think that's also true for a chapter about 12,000. A blog post can go as high as 12,000, but it better be like chapter quality and it needs to have three to five uh, ideas that are explored in three to five ways each. And a blog post can be about about the about 5,000 words is good for one idea that's explored three or four different ways, but it's all about cognitive load. I mean, it's all about how much a person can be asked to keep up with in their head at one time. Because yeah. you need to, at some point, they need to stop and walk away and digest it. And so you can't just keep force feeding them info. You need to give them just the right amount of info. So a chapter is like a, a elegant three-hour meal at a, at, a, at a fine restaurant or a family gathering or something like that. And a blog post should feel, uh, at a minimum, it should feel like you you treated yourself to a, to a, a, a taco. Uh, uh, and at a maximum, it should be like you treated yourself to uh, um, a... A, a meal at a, uh, a a place that doesn't serve wine. Uh, so, so, but but you should. That doesn't mean you shouldn't challenge yourself to make something that quality. Um, I think that it's all about cognitive load. I found that I could push the five, six, seven thousand word limit on blog posts, and people would it would finish them, but they wouldn't just finish them and let they wouldn't finish them unless I had uh, used all of the um, tricks of storytelling, where you there's a cold open and there's um, there's foreshadowing that says, I'm going to tell you about this, but not yet. If we're going to go here first, I, I stumbled into something I call the turn. I, I've helped a couple of different um, bloggers turn their stuff into books. And I often mention something I call a turn. There's all sorts of words for it. Uh, I think Stephen King calls it the inciting moment. Um, but you, for each, for each, for the book, for the work as a whole, at, as a, at a meta level, there needs to be an inciting moment. And for each chapter, there also needs to be one. I like to call it the turn. It's the place where, I open with a, I do it on the, on the podcast too. On the podcast, I'm aware that at right about the 24 minute mark, that's when people will finish their commute. Um, so, or it's also right about when you finish making breakfast or when you finish folding your clothes. So, or you finish your workout. So I always front load my podcasts with a, around a 24 minute cold open piece that can be consumed by itself. And it sits alone as a, as a work. 
go to go to break and then after that is the longer like uh johnny carson and conan o'brien section where i'm talking back and forth with the guests um same thing in, in writing there, there's that opening thing with the turn so what i usually do is i open up with something that i don't even tell you why we're talking about it you just drop in in media ray uh you don't know why you're in this you don't know where you're at you're totally discombobulated uh then i relate it to something that i think that everybody will be familiar with usually something maybe from pop culture um or something that is universal to the human experience and then i say you know this is the mystery we're exploring and um but to understand it we need to take a step back into the science and then that's the turn so the turn is you know what's up i've i have i i've likened it before uh, to being like uh being led through the forest by a wizard so like the wizard keeps saying, come, come with me, come with me. And, and like, you are willing to do that for a while, but after 20 minutes or so, you're like, are we going anywhere? So the, they have to at least do a magic trick for you. And then you will go with them. Like, like, I promise you it'll be fantastic. Look at this. And they make like a fiery bird fly into the sky. And then you're like, oh, okay, okay, okay I'm following you. Yeah. So same thing with the, with the piece of writing. I always write up to a turn and then I take you there. There's a in my newest book, uh, How Minds Change, there's a chapter that opens up with, uh, I was sitting in the Knickerbocker restaurant across from a soft-faced bearded man um, who slid between me and my notebook, uh, uh, slid between my notebook and a basket of bread, uh, a photograph of a, uh, uh, neon, uh, of a egg sunny side up, it's yolk, a shade of, of neon, a shimmering shade of neon green. And then the, we proceed to the next thing. So that is a that is a hard cold open that puts you in a very strange place, and you are compelled to go. Excuse me, and then I give you a little bit more of why I'm there, and then we say for you to understand why I came here. Let's back up into the science. That's a good example of like how I usually like to prefer to get people to the turn and get them through it. Right on. I what what's coming up for me hearing you share that. By the way, first of all, thanks for peeling the curtain back and sharing some of the sure yeah behind but is the what's coming up for me is just the thoughtfulness and the the, the awareness of the reader and that the fact absolutely that we don't write in a, a vacuum i guess suppose maybe some people do but um maybe many of those people are writing diaries but you're writing and creating for an audience and you're aware of that in the act of creation i absolutely if i was a hardcore piece of tip put it in your pocket advice write to an audience write to someone very write to someone specifically like some of my worst work came from when I was writing to an editor who did not understand my voice and I was trying to write to what that editor liked and I was just inauthentic and it came through and it was my worst writing I've, that I've probably ever have done. I used to, before I had editors, I would write to a very specific person in my life that I thought would be, uh, would think well, this was uh, I wanted to make that one person laugh or make that one person go, wow, like, like that was a, a trick in the beginning. And then once I got kind of locked in with um, an agent and an editor that I knew really supported what I did, I could imagine writing to them as an audience. And then once I had a, a fan base uh, on social media and on for the podcast and everything, I'm aware of that community is who I'm writing to. And um, it, that, changes the way you write but it, all, all that really matters is you are you are you are definitely thinking about this is being read by another human being and they have a certain amount of they can there's so many balls they can keep in the air when they're reading something and what's the point of this like is this for me or is, you know it's like you can Yngwie Malmsteen solo all night long and it would be technically marvelous but it's not going to be fun 
and it's not going to be not going to be uh, something that you will consider engaging. And it's not something you'll probably share with anybody. So really do consider your audience. Yeah. So just a moment ago, you mentioned this new book, How Minds Change. Oh, yes. <laughs> who, who is this book for and what, what do you want it to do for them? It has changed. That book's the, the point of that book changed over time because the book started telling me what it wanted to be uh, versus me trying to create something that I thought should exist. Uh, because the more I learned about the topic, the more time I spent with people, the more it became evident that what was changing within myself needed to be the story of the book. The book needed to be my story of how I changed my mind about this whole concept. Uh, luckily, my new editor, Nikki Papadopoulos, that was her, her major suggestion when she came on board. Um, she said, you know, the, the interesting thing about this book is you started it thinking one thing and you ended it thinking another, which on a meta level is you changed your mind about how minds change. And why don't you just tell that to the reader? Uh, I had taken a very authoritative voice before this and Instead, now the book reads where it starts out with, I don't understand the topic. And I tell you directly, I don't really understand this, but if you'll come along with me, maybe we'll figure it out together. And then over time, I start to develop an authoritative voice. And by the end of the book, I've reached a level of some sort of expertise on the topic because I've spent so many years with it. Um, I love that arc, that style. And I'll probably write in that style for the next few books because I think it's really compelling and it's very honest. Um, there's no opportunity to to uh, do a, a thing where some science writers, I think, come up with a, a catchphrase or, a, or an idea and then they write to the idea like it was like they like they invented it when really it's just out of some paper they read. And I don't want to ever do that. I want to always cite my sources and say, I didn't understand this at all. And then I thought it was cool, but then I talked to this scientist who disagreed with that scientist and then it got complicated. And now I don't know what to do and to untangle this. We need to go talk to this person. And just, this feels more honest to me. Mm -hmm. um, this book started out with one single question. I um, was looking, I was researching some other topic and I found that um, the, the majority of people in the United States, 61% of people in the United States were opposed to same-sex marriage uh, and the, 12 years ago. And then today, 61% are in favor. And it's really 61%. At, that's an amazing coincidence. Yeah. And then you look at, if you look at it on a graph, you, if they have opposed and four on the graph, they they cross and, and, and they do so around 2012. And it's just so wild to, to, if you look at it over time, one goes sharply down, one goes sharply up and then they meet at some point. And I real, and I, there was something interesting there to, to me about, there was a, a moment when it went from majority four to majority against, and it happened within about a decade. So Obama, so, man. Do what? It's Obama. <laughs> well, it preceded Obama, thankfully. Uh, like, like, like it wasn't. It wasn't easily explainable. Like, and also there to me, there was like a three-year period where it flipped, and it just happened so rapidly. It was like a minecart, you know. Like, whoosh. and my question though was like, what is if I took someone from the majority who was now in the for camp and used to be in the against camp? and I put them in a time machine and I took them back just 10 years, they would argue with themselves with the same vehemence that people argue about wedge issues today. And so I wanted to know what happened in that person's brain. Like what was, what if I was could like had a, a futuristic super MRI scanner, what would be different in that brain from this brain? And then what affected it? Like what were the, the what were the parts of the environment that, that changed that? Did somebody 
persuade them? Did the environment persuade them? I don't understand this topic, but there seems to be some magic there. So that was the idea. I was like, I just want to explain that one thing. And I pitched that as a book idea and, and sold a, a, a book on that, on explaining that one thing. So then I take that and I go into um, academia with it. I'm, I'm thinking what I'm going to do is just go ask a bunch of experts and we'll be on our way. I start talking to, to political scientists who say, yes, that was the fastest so recorded social change of all time. And then I'm like, well, so what do you think caused it? Like, no idea. I'm like, what do you mean? No idea. I was like, well, there's a million things, but we don't know what, why this happened so fast, why other things didn't. All right. Let me go talk to some psychologists. Hi, what do you study? Belief. Could you explain to me what a belief is? Ooh, that's tough. Like, what? <laughs> what? You've been studying this for 40 years. Like, yeah, but that's why it's hard to tell you what, it, what I don't even really know what a belief is, tell you the truth. Like, oh my God. Okay. Um, what about persuasion? What do you know about that? Like, other than the Cialdini stuff, which is mainly about behavior, I can't tell you anything. I don't know about how beliefs change. Like, okay. So then I go to neuroscientists. I'm like, what do you know? And they're like, well, the brain's very plastic and in these environments, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but what if it comes to like, you know, thinking that same-sex marriage is evil and then now thinking that it's not evil like what happened in their brain like like dude you're talking about dark matter now like we don't know these things like we barely know how a, we don't even know how a thought is made so i was like wow this is going to be tough to tell my editor like whoops sorry i asking questions that no one knows the answers to so instead which, which I by had, the way, if i can just jump in there is amazing sure. that all those people have so much to say <laughs> in some fundamental ways, they know almost nothing. This is true. This is true. At least they're willing to admit that they don't know it. Um, so I had read a New York Times article about a group of people that had, were going door to door, changing people's minds in less than 20 minutes with a very specific technique. And I thought, okay, let's back up and I'll go there. So I flew to Los Angeles and I embedded with them and I learned their technique and I went door to door with them and I witnessed it actually work. And then, but the crazy thing was they, and then they went through a whole controversy because when some scientists came out to study them, one of the scientists committed fraud and almost ruined the entire endeavor. But luckily another group of scientists came and redid the research and found that it did have a, an actual effect. And, but I would ask the people doing it, these, these people are, are the deep canvassers of the LGBT center of Los Angeles. And I would, but when I asked them, how does this work? Like, what is it? What's the science behind it? They're like, we don't know. Like none of us have ever taken a psychology course. We just know it works. We've just been doing A-B testing for, for years. We've done 12,000 conversations. We know what not to say and what to say. Was this the whole thing about, hey, did you know your neighbor is doing this? Is that the technique they were using when they would talk to people? Like, did you know your neighbor voted? Oh, no, 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 that's, di that's different. That's different, okay. that's different. Um, okay. um, but we can talk about that if you like, but the, that's, that's a slightly different thing. Yeah, let's that's, keep that, going on the thread you're on. That's social proof just expanded out to, to uh, for anyone who's wondering what that is, uh, in Texas, they tried to get people to, to conserve power. And so they thought they would tell them what how much their neighbors were consuming compared to them, but it backfired because when they found out their neighbors were consuming more than them, they consumed more to be, to be better consumers than their neighbors. <laughs> Didn't work. Um, so the, I, um, the scientists who studied this were political scientists, Josh Kala, David Brockman. I, I talked to them just uh, two or three weeks ago. I've stayed, I stay with, I will never stop keeping up with their attempt to understand, to research this, but they, they told me like, we don't actually know how it works either. We don't know what the active ingredient of this is. They described it as, it's as if we found out there's a certain kind of tree bark that cures headaches 
but now we need to create chemistry so that we can find what the molecule is so that we can like replicate it. And but we aren't even there yet. We are just at the level of tree bark, baby. So with that, I thought, let me find as many people that I can find who are uh, either using some sort of persuasive technique that seems to work or they've changed their mind in drastic ways. And that started a completely different uh, adventure. I embedded myself with flat earthers, 9-11 truthers, Westboro Baptist Church, former cult members, current cult members, uh, every conspiratorial community that would, that would invite me in from anti-vaxxers on. Uh, I went to conventions. I went to meetings. I went to, uh, I would just hang out with them, get drunk with them. Um, and then I would also bounce around to people doing things like street epistemology and deep canvassing and motivational interviewing and therapeutic techniques. And I started to notice a series of patterns in both worlds. In one world, the people who believed things and could not be persuaded seemed to be very similar in some regards. Uh, and no matter what it was they believed, it seemed irrelevant what they believed, their other motivations seemed similar. And then the people who are using persuasive techniques that seemed to actually work, the techniques all seemed very, very similar. Uh, but they were unaware of each other. They didn't know that there were other people in the world also doing the same thing, also trying their best to figure out how to change people's minds and also finding that the same things worked. And it seemed to me, it was like, uh, it's like when, you know, when they were trying to invent the airplane and somebody on one side of the world made an airplane that flew and somebody on this side of the world made an airplane that flew and they both looked the same because an air, a thing that flies is going to look the same way because physics is the same everywhere on the planet. A persuasive technique that works is going to look the same no matter who does it because brains are the same and that started that started to excite me to no end and i'm still excited about it i'm about to spit on myself because the the it means there's another uh way to talk about the uh, unity through humility right we are all the same in the regards in regard to what motivates us to think feel and believe in ways that become very difficult to persuade us out of uh, and the fundamentals behind those I started to see as attitudes and beliefs and values are different constructs. They're different mental phenomena that interplay. And also though, the way that we, the way some, a one person can persuade another person to think differently is always going to work the same way because I eventually found scientists who only thought, who only think about this one thing, Hugo Mercier being the main one, there isn't, there was a, at the level of groups, there's a natural selection pressured us to be able to argue and come to better group decisions and, and form goals in a manner that requires us to do it in a certain way that's difficult to replicate through social media, difficult to replicate through sort of a pitch kind of way. But when it was more similar to the way that we evolved to, to send and receive messages, the, more, the better we are at, uh, at sending and receiving messages. So I was like, wow, I'm finding something that I've never read about before. I've never seen it constructed. I've never seen anybody put it out there. And then I was also able to get all these different groups to meet each other, like not the, not the conspiracy theorists, but the, um, the, all these different persuasive communities, I've introduced them to one another and now they're collaborating. And so oh. I'm hoping they make like a Voltron of persuasion out of all of their stuff. Um, and I'm actually hoping that when it comes time for the book to come out, that maybe I can get them all together on stage. Um, and so now I feel like I'm walking around with a superpower. Like I feel like I have, and, I, and the book ends with me, um, using it twice. I went to Sweden and, and, and used it on a flat earther and live on stage. But then I also went to a, a, a retreat. Uh, it was like a, one of these unconferences that I went to where everybody gave a, a lecture at a retreat. And there was someone there who wanted to see the technique. I was fresh off of uh, 
the Sweden adventure and they um, wanted to see the technique in action. And he asked me to use it on him and I used it, the technique, uh, which uh, my version of the technique is a hybrid of all the ones put together and uh, more of a chimera really. But the, they- they You're like the Bruce Lee of <laughs> your yeah. and, and it, The book ends with me choosing not to do it because um, he wanted, he, he, his belief was that he believed in God and he was in a, uh, group of people who were who were very humanistic and 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 mostly uh atheistic in a way but like he felt sort of out of place that he had this deep faith in a personal god but he was like i would like you to challenge that and so i when i did he told me this incredible story uh if he i, I will share it with you now if you'd like it's a, it's it'll take a, about two minutes but um are you okay with that i'll share it with you yeah, absolutely okay so here's the story uh Jathan uh, told me the story and I had spent, this was a four day retreat and I, he had, he was someone I had hung out with a lot there. And uh, we sat down, he said, you know, I only tell this story once a year, but I'll tell it here. It seems appropriate. And um, there were a lot of people there. Almost everybody at the retreat was there. About 40 people decided they wanted to sit in and, and watch it. So we sat at a mess hall and we sat across from a dining room table and uh, it was late at night. And I uh, said, okay, um, you know, what is the, what is the thing you'd like me to challenge? And he said, God, and I was like, oh, that is, you would pick the, the heaviest one. Um, well, you know, tell me like on a scale from one to 100, what your confidence uh, in the claim that there's a God that exists out there somewhere? And he said it was about an 80. And I said, um, oh, 80, that's not a hundred. Why is it not a hundred? He goes, well, it used to be zero. And I'm like, Oh, um, and then now it's 80. Um, and he said all throughout his life, it had moved around for a while it was 50. And I said, well, let, let's, let me ask you, how did it get from 50 to 80? And he said, he, and this is the shortest version of the story, but it was a very long story. He, uh, had went to the, uh, he had gotten involved with, um, some, he wanted to be a photojournalist and he knew somebody who had went to, uh, Afghanistan and there in the surrounding areas and, uh, he had an offer. He wanted to go to Israel and the surrounding areas and he wanted to go to different places in the Holy land. And he wanted to just be a photojournalist. And, uh, but while he was there, he would spend time with various, uh, authorities, uh, holy authorities. And he would sit down with them and they would talk about original texts and they would talk about their take on, on, um, his faith. He was Lutheran by the way. Um, and he eventually found his way to a cathedral which was close to the crucifixion, uh, the site of the suppose, supposedly the site of the crucifixion. And along the way, all these people that he met, he just felt like they weren't very compelling to him. They felt very um, used car salesman-ish to him. And what he was doing was he was very much eradicating his faith, which was his point. He went on this journey to become an atheist, but he felt like he needed to go to truly commit to let me see for myself. While he's at this cathedral though, this holy site, um, this uh, um, is a site that has a bunch of like alcoves around the sides. And um, he goes inside and he asks somebody in there to like help him look at a text. And the guy says, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you look at it for a hundred dollars. And he just was like, oh, just like, it was just like, he said he felt at that moment. He's like, that's it. And like, I finally, you finally got me to zero. And he said, when he walked out the doors of that place, he felt like he was walking out of his religion as well. And so he walks outside and the sun is setting and he hears a woman crying. 
in one of the alcoves. And so he slips around the side and he finds this young woman lying in her in vomit and blood and she's uh, barely moving and she's wailing. And he, she has, she's clutching a suicide note and he learns that she wanted to marry a young boy or if her parents wouldn't allow it, she had taken a bunch of pills to kill herself. And so he, sco he scoops her up and he walks through all these through cobblestone streets in the middle uh, as the night is coming in and he barely knows how to speak the language and he hails a taxi and she's limp in his arms and he takes her puts her in a taxi goes to the a hospital with her has no idea who this person is uh sits with her uh as they uh, start pumping her stomach and he and then they take her out and he's holding her hand and uh I get, uh, this is uh, this is still hits me hard i can feel it coming up inside i can feel my eyes starting to get to to go um, she had a book of numbers and he went through the numbers one by one until he found her parents and, uh, they could speak English and he told her, told them where he was. And so they came and he spent all night with her and, uh, she lived and, uh, he eventually had dinner with them and spent, a, he went back and forth with the family a few times. He kept up with her. She eventually became a nurse. She got married. She has kids. So he said, um, whatever God is, that's what God is. He said that uh, he went there to destroy his faith and he found something completely new. And what he found was a connection to the divine. Uh, construct it any way you want, but if he hadn't been there, she would have died. And that his his... His, he had no hesitation, no doubt, his commitment to, to doing whatever it took to save this person's life. And that's divine. And so he went from 50 to 80. And so he tells a story and it takes forever for it to come out of him because it's very difficult for him to tell the story. And I knew all the steps in the persuasive technique that come after this. And I, know all, I knew all these like practical ways to ask him to challenge whether or not this is actually evidence towards something um, uh, spiritual, something bigger than us, right? Something tangible. And I hesitated and I had spent all these years learning all of this. And then here it is in front of me and I feel like, what good is it? And so I took, a, I said, Jathan, if I had a glass case with a button in it and I put it in front of you and this button if you open up the case and you press the button you'd go back down to zero would you press it and he thought and thought and thought it was this long pregnant pause and by this point everyone had like really collapsed in and was like leaning in to hear what he's going to say and he said no and I said I can't think of any good reason to keep talking about this like you've given more to me than I could ever take from you um, and so I, I just, uh, that's just going to stop here and thank you. And so I stood up and we embraced and then the crowd collapsed in on us. We had this giant weeping hug and, uh, I had to really sit and think about like, what was this book about? Like at the end of this journey, I chose not to use the thing that I had spent so much time trying to understand. And that became like the, the point, right? The, I, I have a say in the book that I added a step zero to before step one, which is ask yourself, why would you want to change this person's mind? What do you, why do you want to do this? What does it say about you that you want to change this person's mind? What are your actual intentions? And um, it, 
I, I had a friend who's a negotiation expert named Misha Globerman, who I brought that whole story to. And he, he said, you know, it was very important to, to fully understand why it is that you are so com committed to wanting to change somebody's mind about something, whether it's a fact or an attitude or a value, whatever it is. Uh, maybe in exploring why you want to do it, you will realize more like you will abandon the pursuit because you realize there's something in you don't you don't understand, and it's more important to understand that than it is to do, engage in the pursuit. So, um, it, it just it, it was huge, right? So that's how the book ends now, which is kind of strange. Like I spend all, you go through all these chapters, going through all the science, and then I hand you this tool, and then I ask you at the end, it's like please don't use this tool unless you're you know why you're doing it, and, it was, and because it's very powerful. And why would you want to shake someone's faith who who like regardless of how you feel about religion or God or anything like that, you cannot deny that something divine happened in that moment. And whatever you, whatever words you want to use, whatever categorical constructions you want to do, however you want to articulate the ineffable of that, uh, it is almost irrelevant how you construct it because you cannot deny the ineffable that occurred in that moment. His, he, 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 he fully expressed something important and human that I hope we carry with us to the stars. And how dare I try be so bold as to say, but oh, have you thought about this? Like, it's not important. He's, he, he can do that himself. Uh, that's not the kind of thing, like, it's not a flat earth type thing. And so I grew you know, enormously in that pursuit. And uh, yeah, that's the, so, so what is the book about? It's about all that. It's, a, it's about why we do we think the things we think, feel the things we feel, do the things we do, but how do, how do brains update themselves? How do they assimilate and accommodate over time? How do we form the model of reality we use to navigate the world? What do we, how does it, what changes it? What updates it? And then how does interpersonal communication uh, affect it? And then how does that translate to social change over time? So if you want to understand the science of all that, I tell you, if you want to understand the network science of it, the social science, the political science of it, I tell you, the neuroscience, the psychology, all of that. If you want to know how best to persuade other people, I'll tell you that too. But also at the end, I hope you understand like that it's, this is not like, um, one of those of persuasion books that is like how to win friends and influence people. Like uh, that's not, uh, I, I'm not handing you a tool that, that it should be, that could even be used for these purposes because um, people will see right through it and I hope they do. So that, that's sort of the strangeness of this book. It's like nothing else I've ever made. That's amazing. When is <laughs> it released? It's supposed to come out. It's going to come out in October, hopefully. Uh, I'll leave it to the publishing lords to decide what's the best month for it to come out. But I've been told somewhere between October and January, but they'll figure it out. COVID changed the game in that regard, but they'll they'll figure it out. Yeah, and uh, because things on the internet, I think they'll live forever. <laughs> for everyone listening, we're talking about October of 2021, maybe later, according to the whims of the publishing lords. That's but, right, that's right. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing that with me. And I can't wait to, to pick up this book. Um, it's really incredible. So, man, we've time passes so quickly. There's still so much I want to cover. But sure, sure. You get, uh, we can do 30 more minutes, no problem. Okay. Well, let me definitely have two questions. I'll just park these. Because one I'm really interested in is if there was one thing, I do want to get to the enlightening lightning round for sure. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw these out there. Let's do the enlightening lightning round and maybe come back to these or something else. But one is about if you had that moment, like that dramatic scene where the doors are closing and the person is going to go away forever and you only have time to tell them one thing that they can use to improve the quality of their life, right? From the vast research and experience you've had in all of this, that one thing that you would impart, <laughs> you know, that's one thing. So we'll park that. Oh Lord. Okay. The other one is about if we know these things, right? Like we know all these, we can go to Wikipedia and read the page of all the biases and all of that and the cognitive filters and stuff. 
and we know that the narratives we live in some real way are total crap. If we know that, why is it so damn hard to change and like create an empowering one and live it every single day? So that, that's uh, the Okay. Question one. What's the one thing I'd hope you'd know as the doors are closing? Uh, you, you get more from disconfirming than confirming. That's the most important lesson. Uh, that you get more from it, you're saying. Yeah. You get more from disconfirming than confirming. This is true in all regards. Uh, you, whatever it is you're exploring, ask yourself how you, um, try to find out how, how wrong you are before you try to prove how right you are. That, that's the simplest thing I can say about it. Like it's uh, look for the null hypothesis in life. Um, don't fear the, 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 the opera don't, don't, uh, don't waste an opportunity to discover how wrong you are. Um, that's, that's, it's, it's very difficult to know when you're wrong because being wrong, uh, famously, uh, feels exactly like being right until you discover you're wrong. So, um, whatever it is, whatever it is, um, the, like are there are domains in which this is going to seem like you shouldn't do that interpersonal relationships, faith-based things, even the story I told about Jathan, but there is no harm that's going to come from you, from you discovering that you could be wrong about something. If it's really true, it will only be, it will only be um, uh, nourished by this pursuit. So um, look for disconfirmation. I mean, at the simplest level, if you're going to, if you're going to Google something, Google, you know, like let's say it's, um, let's say you're hesitant about a vaccine. It's going to be very easy for you to find YouTube videos from other people who are also hesitant. Uh, you, and you will learn nothing from that. You will need look for look for evidence that that you're wrong, and then balance the scales with that. But do that with everything. Do that with absolutely everything. Um, whether it's a it's a artistic, spiritual, scientific, life based, relationship based. Uh, interpersonal between you and another human being communicate well and uh, be willing to disconfirm your assumptions. I think uh, there's a whole lot that gets rotted and poisoned and polluted by assumptions because they are, they're just thoughts in your head. They are not evidence from outside the outside world. And the only way you're going to ever like adapt, evolve and grow is to uh, challenge your assumptions. And there's, you have to actively do that. That is not something that you just uh, you don't lay back in bed and have your assumptions challenged unless, you know, you, you know, a tornado sends trees to your house and you assume that you were safe. Uh, rarely does this happen. Uh, you need to actively pursue it. So that's, that was my major piece of advice to, for everybody to take with them forever and ever and ever and ever. Um, you'll only grow from it. You're only going to grow from it. Um, and you're probably wrong about like almost 90% of what you're assuming. So, so there's that. The, the other question you asked about like, why is it so hard to change your mind? Well, I mean, th there's so many ways to attack this. First thing I would say is uh, when we say change our mind, it's a very difficult to parse uh, expression. Some cultures don't even have this expression. Um, what do we mean when we say change our mind or what do we mean by the word mind? I'm a, I would say it's, uh, we can think in terms of propositions, truth-based propositions. We can think in terms of fact-based claims. I would say it's probably somewhere in, in one of these three buckets. It's either an attitude, a belief, or a value. An attitude is a estimation. Uh, it's an evaluation of something positive or negative for or against uh, attraction, repulsion. It's, it's a valenced evaluation of something. Uh, if I say banana pudding, uh, you have a, either a positive or negative attitude about that. If I say medical waste, you have either a positive or negative evaluation of that thing. 
If I say the matrix equals, you have a positive or negative evaluation about things. These are attitudes. If, you have, if I ask you, do you think the president is a good president? This is where it starts to be, am I asking about your attitude or am I asking about a fact? Um, is the president good or bad? What I'm asking you is your attitude toward that thing. Uh, is it a, how could I ever, how could I ever enter the realm of fact-based claims when everything we're talking about is the evaluation of something valence? Yet when we try to change people's minds, we often treat a, an attitude claim or an attitude proposition like that as if it's a fact-based claim and techniques that work on beliefs don't work on attitudes. And that's when we get very frustrated. The, um, and a good example of this is when somebody is an anti-vaxxer and I don't mean for COVID, I mean, um, for the vaccines that, uh, that usually we, the, 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 um, the vaccine battery that, that children usually get that some people are very hesitant to, to, to receive or have their children receive that, um, that's, they'll say something like vaccines cause autism. And then you'll attempt to change their mind about that. And that's a fact-based claim. That's a belief, right? I believe this is true. And a belief is a, is a, is as information encoded in the brain that has, that carries with it some sort of confidence, um, metacognition. Um, that's why often in the beginning you say from zero to 100, how confident are you in this? Um, all the information encoded in our brain also carries with it some sort of, uh, a, a, a intuitive confidence value and at high levels of confidence, we say it's true at low levels of confidence. We say it's maybe not true, possibly false, but we also can be very confident that something is false. So obviously the language gets really weird here. The point is the confidence determines whether or not it's true or false. That's a belief. And then a value is what do we think is more important to worry about than something else? Like what should be the thing that we consider if we had to stack everything against each other, what's something that should take up our time? What should we focus our goals on? What should we, exp what should we use our efforts toward? That's valuation. So these three things interplay and they, they're just ingredients in a big cake of, 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 of uh, the models of reality we use to parse and make sense of the world and, and predict it and make goals and, and determine cause and effect. But if somebody says to you, vaccines cause autism, your immediate reaction usually is, okay, I want to change their mind about that. And so you start pulling in facts from the outside world, some of the facts from the outside world, you start getting bullet, bullet points and YouTube videos. And this scientist is this, and this scientist is that. And um, the thing though, is like, you might even successfully uh, persuade that person that vaccines don't cause autism, but it will not ch change the fact that they do not intend to vaccinate their child. Research into this is very clear. Like, uh, they've taken thousands of people and used all sorts of techniques to get them to be less vaccine hesitant. The CDC is very uh, committed to this kind of research. And what they often find is that what happens is the person will give up that belief, that very particular belief, but their intent to vaccinate becomes even less likely. So they, they, they all, you actually made them more hesitant by convincing them that this one thing that they believe is not true. This seems very counterintuitive. This seems uh, like this is what they would, has often been called the backfire effect. Um, the reason that happens is because you were never, you were trying to change their beliefs uh, when you should have been trying to change their attitude. What is their attitude is something along the lines of, um, I do not trust authorities. I do not trust institutions. I certainly do not trust government medical institutions, which is sort of a mix of authority and institution together. I also don't understand the science behind this. So this is some sort of magical cocktail. I don't understand that either. Uh, I, I, have, I have a fear of all these things. I also strongly do not like the idea of my agency be taken, being taken away by another individual. I have a very primate concern in that regard. And then you're saying on top of all that, 
I'm going to take everything that I'm afraid of and that I'm hesitant about and that I fear in this world, everything that gives me anxiety, and you're going to put it in a needle that's going to be put into my child against my will. So you're going to hurt my child by taking away my agency and their agency. And an institution is going to do that, one that I do not trust from the government. And also you terrible scientists, who knows what you're up to. All that stuff. That's where the attitude comes from. And it's multi-leveled and multifaceted and it's nuanced. And what happens is we feel that viscerally. And then we look for uh, we look for justifications of this attitude, evidence, evidence that will justify why we feel the way we feel, which we cannot help but feel. And we're, what we're looking for are reasons why we feel that way that would be considered plausible to other people in our social support network. So we come up with reasons to explain ourselves to ourselves that would be plausible to people who we feel we owe social costs to. And those reasons become the reasons why we feel the way we feel. And that comes out as, let me cherry pick through all the evidence to find something that seems reasonable to my social cohort. Vaccines cause autism. No one in my group would, would say that it would be uh, opposed to that being why I don't want to do this. So if you successfully show somebody enough evidence that gets them to say, no, I should, I, I agree with you. They don't cause autism. Everything else is still there and it will drive them to just find some other piece of evidence to justify their conclusion. So all the, all the good persuasive techniques need, work backwards they, through the processing chain to find what is the actual source of a person's hesitation in that regard. So why is it so hard for people to change their minds? Like on some things it's not, uh, you know, if I tell you, if you think it's Tuesday and I tell you, no, it's actually Monday, you're going to go, oh, thanks. But if, if you think your hamster's alive and you walk in and you see your hamster's dead, now you've updated your priors. Hamster no longer alive. Um, but when it comes to, this is what Piaget called assimilation and accommodation. All brains update themselves through a system of assimilation and accommodation. And assimilation is when you, uh, you learn something new about you, novel information. You encounter novel information uh and that you is ambiguous and then you disambiguate it using what you understand and if it if you can successfully do that you assimilate it into the model you're using to make sense of the world but if that novel information is cannot be disambiguated using the model you must expand the model in some way to accommodate it you change you change your mind so there's it's two kinds of changing your mind right one is like if i tell you uh quentin tarantino has a new movie out uh you're like oh wow really i didn't even know he's making a new movie so something has been updated in your brain. You have changed your mind in a certain way, but it's just assimilation. Like everything you know about Quentin Tarantino is still there. Everything you know about movies is still there. Everything you know about uh, entertainment and the 5 billion things you have to understand to make that sentence make sense in your head. Like a baby's not gonna understand what that, but like a full grown adult uses a lot of its model of reality to understand the phrase, Quentin Tarantino has a new movie coming out. But if I tell you, hey, did you know that, uh, we just learned that Quentin Tarantino is not a real person. It's actually Danny DeVito operating a mech uh, made out of um, meat and, and it was designed in a lab in the 1970s. Um, no, for real, like, okay, first, that's gonna be tough to convince me on because so much of my model of reality now has to be updated to accommodate this information. But if I do, if, if I do fully commit and believe that that is true, I uh, must accommodate and now all of reality changes. Um, that's what accommodation is. That's deeply changing your mind. And that is very difficult to do. The brain avoids that at all costs because if you update in the wrong direction, you become dangerous. If you're dangerously incorrect, you could die from it, right? But also if you don't update when you should, you could die. So the, the brain is very, walks a tightrope of adaptiveness in that regard. 
let me use an example that's not so bizarre but that everybody could understand when a child is told let's say um you know it comes assimilation accommodation starts with like if if you eat something that doesn't taste good and you've never eaten something that doesn't taste good before the world gets twice as complex in that moment everything tasted good everything that i could ever eat tastes good then i eat something that tastes bad and like oh no things can taste bad massive accommodation the another level of abstraction this the the, the entirety of your model of reality just got twice as big a little bit more complex once you've had a little more experience let's say you see a dog and uh, you've probably seen this in children, you know, they point and they go, eh, and you're like, that's a dog and like dog, dog, dog. And they learn, okay, dog. I now know that this thing is a dog in the brain though. What's happened is they say thing with four legs, hairy tail dog. So they see a horse and they go dog. And you're like, no, no, that's not a dog. That's a horse. And like horse, huge moment for the brain because, uh, at first, the category was things with four legs that are hairy with tails or dogs. But now you've introduced that that is just one thing within a higher order category. And that's accommodation. So every time that child sees another dog, that's assimilation. When that child learns that there could be other things that aren't dogs, that's accommodation. And we do that for the for the as long as we're people. We're constantly adding layers of abstraction to the entire thing anytime we do so the world gets a little bit bigger and we start to and we understand it's much more complicated than we thought it was before but at a certain level things like if you're eating and not dying and reproducing like it's really not valuable to you for you to accommodate unless that thing helps you to eat better not die better and reproduce better so it, it would rather deal with false positives and false negatives as long as there's no harm involved and if you are trying to change somebody's mind about something that has tremendous social costs to it for them to change their mind, that they have all these motivations for not doing so, there's no real value for them. To, they can just take the hit of being wrong because the maybe it ingratiates them to their subculture, maybe it ingratiates them to their job, maybe it keeps the money flowing, maybe it keeps the reputation going. All these things are more valuable than accuracy. Social, so those, those concerns will always outweigh the other ones. So in the pursuit of assimilation and accommodation, uh, there are certain things that are, there's gonna be a, a risk reward analysis at each stage of, of, of accommodation. And uh, what we often see is that people will find a way to assimilate. Uh, I'll end with this last example. Like the most famous example comes from cognitive dissonance research and cognitive dissonance is that moment whenever a, a thought, feeling, behavior, belief, attitude, value, or whatever comes into conflict with another one. And so one of the two must be wrong. Like you feel that deeply and intuitively and you have to, uh, there's there, but there's a way to get out of it, which is that you can just assume that the uh, instead of no, instead of thinking that the novel information is wrong, you think that your interpretation of it is wrong. And if your interpretation of it is was is incorrect, then you can just change your interpretation instead of changing the information. So the most famous example of that is the the doomsday cult that was uh, Leon Festinger uh, infiltrated with his research team. They thought the world was going to end on a very specific day. They prayed and prayed and prayed for it. They, they gave up all their possessions. They got ready to die. They put on special clothes and then a, an alien spaceship was gonna come and pick them up and then the world was gonna end. But the day came and went and it didn't happen. So now what do you do? <laughs> so what you could do is say, the new evidence suggests that I was wrong about that. And maybe these aren't cool people to hang out with and maybe I shouldn't have done this. But there's a tremendous amount of social cost in that. And there's a tremendous amount of, a tremendous amount of identity cost in that. So another option for them was to say, um, we, when what they actually said was, we prayed so hard, we saved the world. 
and so the alien spaceship didn't come. Okay, assimilation is saying that the alien spaceship came because now nothing changes inside your head. You just, you've just found a way to interpret the world using your current model in a way that allowed for the novel information to not be so novel. But accommodation would be to say, oh, I was wrong about that and I can be wrong about things like this. And therefore I need to change everything about how I understand about the world in this domain. That would be accommodation. And that's when you allow novel information to update the model instead of allowing the model to change the way you interpret the information and see. <laughs> okay. There's a lot to think. Of. I'll be thinking about that for probably this whole, we're heading into the Memorial Day weekend as we record this. And I'm pretty sure come Monday morning, I'm still going to be chewing on that. <laughs> yes. It's very fun stuff to stay obsessed with for years and years. And years. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Okay. Well, let's go to this um, nine questions. They're intended to be, um, like I, the name implies, the lightning round. You're welcome to answer as long as you'd like, but... Okay, cool. Okay, question. How you doing, by the way? You doing okay? Yeah, I'm great. Good. Okay. Question number one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... A, life is like a walk-on part in a play that you uh, that in another language. <laughs> okay, that reminds me of the is it Oscar Wilde? Life is like a play, but it's poorly cast. <laughs> like that. Okay, question number two. Here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Um, there's this thing that people do where they say it's, they were doing a lot in 2020 where they're saying it's, I can't believe it's 2020 and we're still doing X. And, and so now we do it in 2021, we do it forever. Like, I can't believe it's, it's 2021 and people are still doing whatever. Dude, we went from the airplane to landing on the moon in 66 years. Uh, we didn't know that vitamin C existed until the 1930s. We didn't know galaxies existed until roughly the, like 20 or 30 years into the 20th century. Uh, we didn't, my parents didn't have flushing toilets as children or running water. My grandfather saw a TV for the first time when he was in his forties and thought it was two miniature men uh, fighting each other and he didn't understand it. We are living like in a world that is so new. I'm impressed that, about everything we're doing. Uh, so it's, to me, it's inverted. Like I always say, like, I can't like, if they say, uh, I can't believe it, like, I can believe it's, that it's 2021 and we're still doing whatever horrible shit that we're doing. Like, like yeah, I believe it. Um, I'm amazed when we pull off anything right now. We are at the very beginning of this thing. Like, I'm a very optimistic person. Uh, I'm even Pollyannaish in a way that I fully believe we're going to like explore the, 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 the galaxy and that we're going to do all sorts of amazing things as this, as this absolute anomaly of, of natural selection. Yet, I am aware that if you just roll the clock back 200 years, whoa, right? Like, uh, but you roll it back 40 years, like the world of 1951 is almost apocalyptically dystopian. Um, so this is something that people disagree with me on. I, 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 I do not, I'm never surprised that we're still doing something that people think we ought to have stopped by now. Uh, we just got started is how I feel about those things. <laughs> All right. Question number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? 
I have that shirt and it says, bless your heart. Uh, I should have worn it. I should have worn it. Uh, that's a Southern expression that me, does not mean bless your heart. That means you can go fuck yourself. But that's, I, but I love that shirt because in, um, I have a book here by Dove Cohen called The Culture of Honor. And it's a whole lineage of how um, people that settled in the American South uh, came from herding cultures in certain parts of Europe. And they had this whole culture of honor thing. And he did this study where he had people in a hallway and they would bump, they, like they had this, they, I love this study. If you allow me to digress, there's a, there's a hallway and there's a, out, there's a door in the hallway that goes to another room. They have this person fill out a questionnaire. They take a sample of their blood and their saliva. And they're asked to take the questionnaire to the other end of the hallway and give it to a researcher. On the way there, somebody comes out of that little thing and refuses to get it, let, let them pass. And then they go so far as to bump them. And when they bump them, they go, asshole. The person, the person that bumped them says that. And then the person gets the other in the hallway and they take, they take the thing and they give them the blood and saliva and they take a second blood and saliva sample. And so they see the difference between who they were before and after. And what they found was people who had spent 16 years or more in the deep South would have levels of testosterone and cortisol go through the roof after they had been bumped in the hallway. Uh, whereas other people who had not spent 16 years in the deep South would have normal levels of cortisol. And they would even ask them after the interview, people who had not lived in the deep South very long, how did you feel when that guy bumped you? They're like, I thought he was stupid. It was silly. It was funny, actually, kind of what a weirdo. Whereas they asked people from the deep South, how did you feel? And they're like, I want to murder that man. I want that. I want to end that person. I can't, I can't, how dare they? And, uh, so, but, so herding cultures in the modern world who haven't have enough cultural momentum that um, there are all these phrases in terms of, uh, of uh, there's all these turns of phrase and all these linguistic uh, loopholes to maintain decorum. And uh, so a lot of what gets treated as like romantic Southern expressions, especially in the, in the, in the uh, Magnolia Moonlight accent, they're like, well, hello there. Might I offer you a, a fine drink or something to, to part your, like, your, 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 like that, world is actually people doing everything they can to avoid a confrontation and i love that so much and it still stuck with us and so if you are in the deep south and somebody goes oh bless your heart they are insulting you at a level that you can't even conceive like they want to wow. throw you into a volcano so i love wearing <laughs> that shirt because only in certain in certain places it's it means nothing and in other places like oh my god i can't believe he's got that shirt so that's my favorite shirt them's <laughs> fighting words <laughs> for real bless your heart Wow. <laughs> that is great. I am learning so much. Awesome. Okay. Question number four, what book other than one of your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? Oh, that's easy. Uh, I, um, uh, Joe by uh, Larry Brown. I give, I give that book as a gift uh, very often. Um, Joe is a, Larry Brown was a Southern author from, um, uh, close to Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, he was a, firefighter a, a volunteer firefighter most of his life but he really wanted to be an author uh and he just hacked away at it for forever and ever and ever until he got to a point where i'm absolutely certain he's the greatest uh, writer of our of of the of the maybe the 20th century but definitely definitely of for, for a, a, a two generations um he just he understands storytelling at a level that i may never understand and he produced the perfect book called Joe and it's full of great things in it but there's a there's this one scene in it and I often ask people to read it and then after they finish reading it, I ask them how this particular scene made them feel um, and there's a I'll give it away here but there's a there's a scene where Joe wakes up with uh, a woman who he's uh, 
picked up and and they had like a one night stand and she's lying on the bed and um he's awake and she's asleep and it's like early morning hours and he looks at her and he said um her the way she was on the bed the way her hair cascaded across it she looked like one of those paintings which she had never seen comma would never see and i remember reading that i was in the parking lot of a walmart uh when i was still a uh a print journalist and i read that and i looked around at everything around me and i felt so so deeply awfully um hurt on her behalf also on joe's behalf these two fictional characters and i understood the the misery of the sentence and he just keeps going like, but we just go just keeps just, the joe goes about his day that that one reflective thing that was abys, ab, abysmal like still hits me so I, I always recommend that book it's 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 a really as far as like uh if i want you to taste the most delicious a chocolate of storytelling that's the book wow i've never even heard of that book but i highly recommend it for introducing me to it i'll definitely check it out Okay, question number five involves travel. So in your life, you've traveled a lot. What's something you do when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Hmm, I do a lot of stuff. Boy, is that something I've optimized. Um, I, uh, I mean, like, okay, I guess the most practical thing is I always, as soon as I put my bags down and get everything like, settled, I don't take out my clothes or anything. I leave everything bundled up and I immediately walk outside and I do a, a, about six concentric circles of walking around where I'm at. And I, because years ago, I noticed that I would be in a place for weeks and then right around the time to leave, I would need to get something like deodorant or, or uh, I wanted orange juice or something. And then when I would walk to go get it, I would discover, oh, I was by this the entire time. There was this here the entire time. Like I didn't even know where I was at. Like I was still on the internet it was still in a virtual landscape. I wasn't in the place I was at. And I, it has really enriched my travel to, as soon as I get there, do some like concentric circle rings around the neighborhood and get pretty far out and then find my way back again. And it changes the way you think about where you're at. So that's not like an airport, an airport trick. That's a, that's a, after you get there trick that has really improved my life. That's awesome. All right. Question number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? That's good. Oh, well, I don't eat meat. That's one thing, I guess. Um, how I long uh, have, how long have you been meatless? Four years. Um, I uh, I did it. Like uh, I did it because uh, I had had like a, a medical scare where I'd um, I had gotten a gout reaction from. Uh, I spent a weekend drinking beer and then I went to a barbecue cook-off. And so I like had loaded, overloaded myself with purines and, and had and my body could not process them. I'd, I'd gotten the King's disease over a weekend by eating so much meat and drinking so much beer that I had overloaded my body. And uh, so I, I, I swore off of it for a while. And after, and after a while, I was like, I don't miss this at all. And um, so I, I stopped eating meat and I stopped smoking. So those two things deeply improved my life. I don't know if, uh, you know, uh, oh, here's another practical one. Oh, this is something I hope everybody does. I do not comment on social media if I don't like something uh, art-wise. So if I see a movie that I don't like it, I just don't, I just don't mention it. But if I do see a movie and I like it, I'll tell you all about it. Man, that changed my life so much. Like my social media experience 
got a thousand percent better by I just don't get on social media and tell you about something I don't if, like if the new Zack Snyder thing if like if I watch it and go eh, I don't get online and go saw the new Zack Snyder thing sucked ass like I just don't <laughs> yeah. I just don't do it I just don't talk about it yeah I'm with you and wishing that everyone like can we like start a pledge or something that people it's, will agree it's to my navigate? social media golden rule yeah only comment on things that made you happy or improved your life or you enjoyed if it didn't just leave it I mean Politics aside, if you're a politically engaged person, I get you need to comment on it. But art-wise, if I don't like it, I just don't, I'll just move on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's just good old mothering advice as well, right? <laughs> yeah. Can't say anything nice. That's right. That's the yeah. Southern, must be my Southern thing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. Uh, question number seven. What is one thing you wish every American knew? Oh, God. Every American. Hmm. I mean, my knee-jerk reaction is I would I would wish they uh, could go outside the country and, and just experience it. You know, um, you'd just be so astonished about some things you, you will find you will be like, "Wow, America's great!" Like some things you will be like, "I am really proud of that," uh, and the other things you'd be like, "Why do we do it that way?" So that's my knee-jerk reaction. But um, what did I wish every American knew? I guess uh, <laughs> coming from a small town, I think that. Uh, uh, I would hope that every American knows that uh, if you don't, it is so easy to move. It is so easy to move. I know that it, like um, it's, it feels impossible uh, to go to go live in another city um, or to go to another country and live. It is so much easier than you think. Set aside some money, get about $2,000. I would I recommend 8,000. Uh, take as long as you need to do that. For some people, it's going to take years, but get it and then go. And you could always come back. You could always come back. So I wish the thing I wish every American knew is you can always come back and you would not believe what would happen to you once you get out of your hometown. Please do that at least once. And you would be astonished at what happens to you. And I love that, as I understand, um, are you living in your hometown? You said your parents were a ways from where the tornado was, but. I, I, I was living in Toronto before COVID and uh, I got, I have a home base here because my parents still live here. And so I came here to shelter for COVID. And so I've been here since COVID and uh, I, it's been really illuminating to be back here. Uh, the, uh, I'm next week, I'm back on the road, Los Angeles, Seattle, Austin, doing all sorts of interviews. It's the first, I went to New York briefly. Uh, it was my first time to get out since then, but uh, yeah, I got to, you can, you can always come back. Yeah, I did. And yeah. uh, it's, it's been enormously educational to come back and then like compare and contrast it to my experiences in other places. But I, I, I'll, most young people, that's my, that's my uncle old man advice to them. I was like, please get out of here. Like, I'm not saying you can't come back. I'm saying get out of here for a little while, please. Yeah. And I usually recommend, I actually have a hard number. I'm like, save $8,000 and go and then see what happens. Yeah. Awesome. What's the most important or useful thing you've learned about making relationships work? Communication for sure. Uh, the, if you're walking on eggshells, something's wrong. Uh, the every, if you're, you should never be walking on eggshells. You should feel free to say whatever you are feeling. You should always be able to say when you do X, it makes me feel Y. Um, do communicate. Everything springs from that setting boundaries, setting expectations, telling people how something made you feel. Um, and you know, you should be, hopefully you're, whether it's a friend or it's a lover, you should be deeply invested in what it, 
what how are they experiencing personhood like you're being invited to that you're being invited to their personhood if you're their friend or you're their lover you're being invited to their personhood so this is not a time for you to get on stage and demonstrate and flex and be uh impress them with whatever it is you've done there's an opportunity to um experience the world through another uh sentient entity you should uh, be invested in that and um, the only way you can really do that is if you establish an incredible line of communication. Uh, words are a low bandwidth communication medium. You need a lot of them to, to understand what's going on in another person. Uh, so like I would I, I would think more than half of your work should be like, how close can I get to a, a private language that me and this other person has is that we can communicate almost psychically with each other with just a glance. If you have that with another person, everything else falls into place. If you were walking on eggshells with another person, if you were thinking, I shouldn't tell them X, that needs to be fixed. So that's my main advice. All right. Thank you. And last question here in the Enlightening Lightning Round is, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? <laughs> um, see, well, see, that's a, that is a wild question. Wow. What have I learned about money? Well, um, I, yeah, I remember the first thing I learned. I remember the first time I actually learned something about money. My parents never had any money and my dad liked to, if he did get, if he did have a windfall, he would, he would blow it on something fun or expensive. And I took some, I took a lot of those habits into adulthood because that was what I modeled it off of. Um, but I remember this is God, this is almost like this has been decade, more than a decade ago. I remember I wanted a really nice TV. Uh, I wanted a plasma 720p television and it was outside of my um, budget. And so I set up a bank account and I put uh, a $10 in it a month until I had enough to get the, the TV. And then I got it. And I remember I was like, I got it. Like, I, like there it is. And that I was like, I know this, that's a simple lesson, but I remember learning it. Like, I remember I had to learn that you can do that. And so being able to um, um, delay my gratification in that way, uh, I now currently have like a dozen little, I use an internet bank account that lets you make fake savings accounts. And uh, I have like, a, but it, it shows you your balance in relation to the things you've set aside. And I do that for everything. <laughs> like like I, I have these little uh, uh, tricks that I'm playing on myself where I have set aside a very specific amount of money toward a thing. And then I get the thing or do the trip or do the thing that I'm, I'm saving towards. So like I'm saving for like, 20 experiences in the future and i know i i'd usually save for experiences over things because i had Lori santos on my show she's a, a a happiness researcher and she had found that like in every regard uh when people are are, are studied in this regard um people always uh on the back end appreciate experiences over things um the a thing just becomes another thing over time, unless that thing offers you repeat experiences. Uh, whereas a experiences, you, they nourish you forever. Even when you change, even when they were bad, like you call back on them forever and ever and ever. So I have multiple uh, fake accounts that I'm saving up for multiple experiences that I want to have over time. I'm, I'm planning on going to all these different trips and these things I want to do. None of them are things that are going to, I'm going to come back with a physical object. Uh, they're all just going to be life experiences, but yeah. Learning to save, learning to delay, to delay gratification, oddly enough, for a TV taught me a really important lesson. 
Thank you. Okay. If people want to learn more from you, they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? Uh, so you are not so smart as the centerpiece of what I do. And so that's got its own website and everything. You can find me on social media at uh, David McCraney. Uh, at not smart blog is just a robot that sends out things that I control from time to time. Um, so find me on Twitter. That's the easiest thing. Email me. I get emails all day, but I answer all my emails. So David McCraney at gmail.com. I'll just give you my email address. Email me. I love talking to people, all sorts of stuff. Uh, sometimes I'll spend, I'll burn a whole day talking to somebody I've never met with some crazy shit. They, they email me. I love that. Um, and uh, moving forward, uh, I have davidmccraney.com. And it looks like now that I have a new book coming out, that's outside of the, you are not so smart brand that I'm going to have to start using that as my central hub. So somewhere in the future, I'll fix all that up. So uh, David McCraney on Twitter, davidmccraney.com, youarenotsosmart.com. Awesome. Okay, and the final, final two-part question. Um, one, we've talked a lot about writing, which is why I don't feel bad about not having a specific writing segment, writing and creativity exploration. But nevertheless, I will just ask you this two-part question. One is, what advice or encouragement would you leave those listening with who have their own writing projects. They're either harboring the dream or they're in the belly of the snake. And then what's the final thought that you want to leave uh, people listening with just overall to close the interview? Oh, Lord. Um, when it comes to writing, like uh, I'll split that into two. There's the writing business and there's the writing um, enterprise. There's the writing uh, practice. Uh, there's no way around it. You have to write every day and you have to read constantly. So, um, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's, I've read, I've read some really terrible stuff, always teaches you something. Um, always have a book that you're in the middle of reading. And when you put it down, pick up another one, never stop ingesting long form, never stop. Uh, and then um, Corey Doctorow has some really good advice that I've been following forever when it comes to having a writing um, lifestyle. Uh, he's, he says, write Just 75 words a day, but you know, I set my goal a little higher, but um, have a goal, try to reach it. You don't have to even keep up with it after a while. You'll feel it out. What's your do goal? try to do what? What's your, what's your word it's, count? Uh, I always try to hit 500 a day, but I almost always hit 2000. So, um, do write every day. Don't worry about the quality of it. Uh, it can be journal. It can be diary. It can be blog post. It can be Facebook post. doesn't matter, but do, do wield the language on a daily basis. Uh, write every day, read every day. And um, if you're writing professionally or you're trying to finish a book or a project, you know, just sit down and go, uh, vomit it out. That's the first, then edit it, then edit it again, show it to people, but just get it on paper. Most of the work happens in the middle when you're like, oh, I didn't know I even thought that. And you're, you're, you're manipulating words you didn't know were in your head because they weren't, you know, the book's smarter than you are always. So the work is always smarter than you. You can't hold it seven items in your working memory at a given time anyway that's why writing is so amazing so do that um i recommend you keep a hardcore schedule you know there's a time when you stop working every day one of the things that almost killed me was working all day every day for long periods of time don't do that uh stop at five stop at seven whatever works for you and as cory Doctorow told me leave a ragged edge so when it's time for you to quit stop even if it's mid-sentence i know this sounds sacrilegious stop because you need to be the thing that will impinge your progress is when you sit down the next morning, you need to know what, what, how to get going again. And 
you can, if it's completing that sentence or that idea or that paragraph, you don't have to even think, you just sit down and go. And you'll be surprised because you'll go to sleep feeling like, oh, that was really tough. And you'll wake up and go, ah, I know everything. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so leave a ragged edge, keep good hours, write every day, and uh, always have a book around that you're trying to finish. And then when you finish it, pick up another one. Everything else is just going to accumulate like, 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 say, like, like, like grains of sand and dunes. So just work that, keep the work. And when it comes to the business, um, the, uh, I mean, the way, the path to getting your book out there is to have a, have a book, good book proposal. And the path to having a good book proposal is to already have an audience. Publishers these days, uh, are more likely to sign you if you have an audience. In fact, that's usually what they're paying for. Uh, they're, oddly enough, if it was you versus somebody who's 10 times better at writing and researching than you are, but they have zero audience and you have 100,000 followers on Twitter, they're gonna go with the other person. You don't need that many though. You just need an audience that is committed to your work and then likes what you do. So I recommend giving it away for free, whatever it is you make. If it's writing, you know, start up a, a Medium account and just give it away for free every day. Uh, you're always going to be able to make more. The The output is continuous and internal. So uh, give away your stuff for free until you build up an audience. Once you have that audience, if you have a book idea, create a proposal. And then there are many outlets into which you can bring that proposal to try to get an agent on board who can then represent you to show it to a publisher. And then if you have all the other stuff in place, you're much more likely to get a deal and be able to put your stuff out there. So that's, the, that's a, some business advice for getting a book published. Awesome. Thank you for that. And then final thought, what feels appropriate in this moment? Just to kind of leave a listener with, what what's the ragged edge maybe that we would leave this conversation? Um, you know that thing where you get to a certain age and you realize your parents are just people and they have no idea what they're doing, right? Uh, and they tried their best. Well, that's you too. That's all of us. That's every single one of us. And always has been even people we've lauded and put into some sort of celebrity or genius or um you know some sort of uh coveted beautiful in enshrined status like a voltaire or a beethoven or something like beethoven was just trying his best you know he's just he's just fumbling and we're all fumbling stumbling in the dark hurling through space on this giant rock just came online with sentience we just built our first buildings we have no idea what the hell we're doing we're all trying our best. There's two things that come from that for me. One is you can forgive yourself for your own stumbly fumbly path through this thing. Just try to, my friend Brad told me, always just try to do the next best thing when you realize you fucked up. So like always try to do the next best thing. And that's a nice advice. That's a, this allows you to stumble and fumble. If you're continuously trying to do that, when you mess up, you'll be able to correct. Um, and the, you know, the other thing that comes out of that to me is, um, it, it's it's nice to feel like we're the first, you know, like we get to be, we're the ancients for some future version of humanity. We're the ancients. And uh, that feels great. That means everything we're doing is going to resonate. Everything we're doing is building something a thousand years from now. And we all get to contribute one little tiny molecule to a brick in that big giant thing. I love the idea of that. So it gives me, this all plays back into the unity, the humility experience that I, that I have. Uh, not only are we stumbling and fumbling as individuals, we're stumbling and fumbling as an entire uh, 
strange anomaly of, of natural selection. And we all get to be part of that. We all get to be the ancients in this regard. We're the parents that have no idea what they're doing of a future version of humanity. And I think that's grand. And so I would embrace that as fully as you can. Awesome. David, thank you. Thank you so much for that view, for, for sharing so gener generously today of your your experience and I would say your wisdom, your insight, your learning, your study, yeah, your passion, like all of this. I've enjoyed it. I've learned so much. I, I, uh, I've learned a lot from your work too. And just the example, I love your, what I would say, I love your energy. Oh, thank and you. I don't, I hate that term. I hate when people say that, but, but I think your passion comes through in what you're sharing and, oh, and I'm good. grateful for the example. I love, I love being a person so much. <laughs> <laughs> it shows, it shows. Awesome. Uh, thank you for this. You're fantastic. And this is an amazing show. And I really appreciate your mission, like your, your, your goal here, like your intentions, the thing you're trying to do in this world, like with this and the other projects that are related to it. I think it's incredible. And to commit to it in the way you're committed to it. I love it. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> so I feel you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, David McCraney, How Minds Change, the new book, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, talk to you again real soon. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.